Welcome to the LDS Life Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Williams. I decided to redo the interview with Carl Watkins because I thought the other interview went off topic in some ways. And I thought it would be better just to redo the whole thing. And he wanted to redo the whole entire interview as well. So this podcast will also be split up into segments later. Now, the reason I split it up into segments is because people don't have time to hear the whole thing. And I have the whole thing up there in case you're busy with a task like driving on a long trip. You don't have time to look at your iPhone and go from segment to segment. You can just hear the whole thing while you're driving. And there's people that like to do chores around the house and listen to the podcast. and They don't have time to go to the next segment. So I have the option of segments and the whole podcast. I think it was a good podcast. Learned a lot about the sounds of Sunday. We got into a little bit of a discussion about LDS church music. You also hear a really good missionary story that I find very uplifting. So without further ado, let's get to the podcast. It is Friday, November 18th, 2022. I'm Kevin Williams. This is the LDS Life Podcast. We're redoing the sounds of Sunday podcast uh, because it went very long last time, and uh, apparently Carl got some facts wrong and people wrong, so we're redoing it again. So if you have listened to the previous podcast, this one will be a little bit different, and we'll just delete the other podcast, and we'll put this on, and if it goes long enough, most likely it'll be divided into segments. How are you, Carl? Oh, doing fine. Good. And <clears throat> you have a pretty unique program. I actually found out about you accidentally. I was searching for a radio station at a Burley KZDX, I believe. Yeah. Or, yeah. It's and, all 100. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it was the sounds of Sunday that came up in my search. And I found out, oh, that's because KZDX broadcasts it. And then I got sidetracked and looked at that. It's amazing. How far you can go down a rabbit hole when you're searching for another topic, isn't it? Well, you can get sidetracked, that's for sure. Oh, yeah. Although I think in this case, it was a good thing. But uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, your childhood and your conversion story? We'll start there. Well, my conversion story, uh, when I was uh, probably about, uh, I don't know, nine years old, I suspect maybe eight. I was uh, uh, playing with my friend Ronnie on the sidewalk in a wagon. And at that time, it was like a Saturday morning, I think. This man was walking down the, uh, down the sidewalk, and he came up to us and he said, hi, boys, how would you like to go to Sunday school tomorrow? I said, oh, yeah, that would be fun. And my friend Ronnie agreed. He says, we'll go talk to your moms and see if it's okay. Get permission. So we went and talked to our mothers, and they were both okay with it. So the next morning, this man, I think his name was Gantner, he came by, and he picked us up in his car and took us to a Sunday school meeting at a non-denominational Christian church in Southgate, which was really close to Linwood, where I grew up, Los Angeles County. And it was on Tweedy Boulevard, as I recall. So we went there, and uh, I don't think I'd been to church before. I'd heard of it or whatever. I can't remember what I thought of it, and I'm not sure if Ronnie had either. 
And so we went there, but, and they give us a deal. They said, if you come here, we'll give you three merits, which is like paper money, like monopoly money. And when you get a certain number of merits, you can buy something in the chest in the corner over here. So I went and looked in the corner and there was all these little things you could buy with your merits. And they were different amounts of uh, merits that you'd need for the purchase of whatever item, whichever item. And the one that attracted me was the, the cross that glowed in the dark. Now it was a white plastic claw, uh, cross, uh, like a Christian cross. And you'd hold it under a light and it would, uh, it would get the energy from the light. When the light turned off, you could see the cross glowing in the dark, like a green color. Now, I don't know if you remember that uh, type of um, uh, plastic that would uh, illuminate in the dark like that, but that's what this was. And to me, I was fascinated by it, not so much because it was a Christian cross, but because it was a, a cross that would glow in the dark. <laughs> it, it got my imagination. I love things like that, kind of scientific, if you will. So anyway, I kept going. Ronnie didn't go very long, but I kept going week after week until I got enough merits to buy the cross that glowed in the dark. I suspect I went at probably about six weeks, maybe two months or something like that. Oh, okay. And I remember going to Sunday school and this, this teenage girl was teaching it, who seemed like an adult to me because I was so young. I think she was probably 19 or so. And I remember the Christian lessons that she would teach. And one was about Miss Tellalai. Now, Miss Tellalai said she would clean the house, but she didn't really clean it. She would uh, sweep the dust under the rug and not pick it up with a dustpan. Isn't it funny how I remember that lesson all these years? Yeah. And I thought, well, you got to do what you say you're going to do, and you can't tell a lie. You can't say I picked up the dust when he actually just swept it under the rug. So that was the moral of the story. So anyway, I kept going to this, these classes, and uh, eventually Mr. Gentner and his wife paid a visit to our house. And he came by, and my mom was there, and we're so excited about Carl. He's done such a great job coming to Sunday school we've decided to give him his own Bible. So they brought me a Bible and they signed the page on it, uh, Gettner's or something like that. Uh, and I was so proud to have my own Bible, which I'd never had before. So that's kind of my start in religion. As we continue on about, I don't know, a month or two later, a kid from my ward, uh, LDS ward in Linwood, lived around the corner from me, came to my house and said, how would you like to go to primary, Carl? What's primary? Oh, the kids just meet together and we have a good time. On, now, this I was can't on remember. a weeknight, correct? Yeah, it was on a Thursday afternoon. Yeah, for, the, for those of you that don't know, uh, yeah. before the three-hour block, and when was <laughs> it? March of 1980 is when they went to three hours, wasn't it? Yeah, I suspect. I know it, it yeah, got incorporated in the Sunday meetings. Yeah, but so, it used it used to be on uh, who knows when primary would be. I used to. Well, think I think it was, primary. The yeah. way I understand it, primary was on a weeknight, and then you had Sunday school Sunday morning, and then sacrament Sunday evening. At least that's how it was in Utah. Oh yeah, yeah. Before the block, there was all kinds of different schedules yeah. for meetings. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, carry on. So anyway, I I said okay, I'll go to primary with you, and we went to uh, I went to primary with um, with Bill. Bill Pickett was his name. And his mother drove us there, and it was at that time meeting in the back of a theater on Long Beach Boulevard. We had no LDS church in Linwood at that time. And so this is the best they could do. They, they met together 
in the back of a theater. It was like uh, for doing plays and stuff like that. So there was a stage there. And Bill's mother was the choir director or the core. I don't know. She'd teach the, she'd, she'd lead us with the primary songs. And we'd sit in the seats out there in the theater. And I just remember her feet were about my, uh, about the same height as my eyes in the seat, or maybe a little higher. And I remember looking up at her and the only thing I noticed was she wore open toed sandals. And while she was directing the music, her big toe would go up and down to the beat of the song. (laughs) Wow. Isn't that funny? I'd remember that. I can't remember any of the lessons really that were taught, but, uh, uh, you know, at nine years old, what do you remember? So a short time later, I don't know, probably in 1955, let's see, I was turning 10 years old in 55, or no, I was turning 11 years old. So I was 10 at the time. September, I would have been 11 years old. Okay. So we, the, the LDS church built a church house in Linwood. And so we had a church right there across from the high school, uh, in the neighborhoods back there in Linwood. And, uh, he said, well, would you like to come to Sunday school with us? Well, I'm already going to Sunday school at this other church. Well, oh, okay. come to our church. And so I thought I was a little conflicted. I thought, well, how do I tell Mr. Gettner, you know, that I'm going to this other church? He probably won't like that very much. And finally, my mother intervened and uh, was talking to Mr. Gettner. He came over and says, well, my family is all Mormon and everything, and maybe it's a good idea that he would go to the Mormon church or something to that effect. And my mother was not active in church and my dad was not a member. So Mr. Gettner uh, said, okay. And what I did is I started to go to the, his church, Mr. Gettner's church one Sunday and the Mormon church, as I knew it, uh, the, the other Sunday. So yeah. I went back and forth for a couple of weeks thinking maybe that would take care of it. And then one day, a lady in the back of the foyer of our chapel, I'm just standing in the back of the foyer, it's at the rear of the chapel. And she says to me, and I told, she asked me what the problem was, and I told her. And I says, well, she said, you know, they can't all be true. There can only be one true church. And I'd never really thought about that before. Thought they were all churches were good churches. No, there's only one true church that they all teach different things. And I thought about that. It it stuck with me. And I can't remember, maybe a week or two later, I'm standing in the back of the chapel, pondering that thought. When I looked, I turned around and looked up at the track rack on the wall, which is a wooden rack that holds the tracks at that time. uh, They were just little pamphlets that you could read about Joseph Smith, which church is true and so forth. They were like missionary tracks. I turned around and glanced up at the rack, pondering is the Mormon church, the true church. And I remember a very warm feeling coming to me, tell me that it was, this is the true church. And uh, that's basically where my testimony began. I don't think I even knew what the book of Mormon was. I just knew that it was a good feeling in this church. And I knew that Mr. Gentner's church had really good people in there too. They were very friendly and kind to me. So I can't say that that was uh, not the case because it was, I give them credit for that and the love that, they, that I felt from them. But I felt the same thing in the Mormon church, if you will. And I, but the one thing was, this was exceptional. This was the true church, and all the other churches were not. So that's where it started. That's where my testimony began. 
And I just continued to go to the, to the LDS church after that. Were there hard and, feelings about with the other guy that would no, take you I don't the, think so. I think my okay. mother settled it with him. Uh, he felt disappointed and sad or whatever. I think that was about it. And that meeting that she, he came to the house, my mom was there, uh, trying to give him an excuse why Carl wouldn't be going to his church anymore. He felt sad about that. I don't know if they're hard feelings, but, uh, that I didn't see him again after that. I was pretty much done with Mr. Gettner. I never, I don't know what's we ever became of him, but okay. he, he and his wife are very nice people. So I continued to go to the LDS church and I was probably turning 10 at that time. And I'm sitting in the back of the chapel. This is probably two years later. I'm sitting in the back of the chapel with my friend, Dick Shumway. Uh, Dick Shumway is my age, and we just kind of yak in the back of the chapel at Sunday school. <laughs> you know, you know, kids yeah. carry on, not necessarily being very reverent. So on Sunday, he said to me, I started to talk to him in the back of the chapel as the meeting was beginning. Shh, you got to be quiet. Your friend Dick said that? Yeah. I said, okay. why do I have to be quiet? Because the bishop's watching. The bishop? What's the bishop? Who's the bishop? Oh, he's up there. He's always watching. What? And I started looking around. I thought, where's the bishop? Who's the bishop? Is he, is he hiding in one of those speaker grills up there on the, on the chapel? And they had these decorative uh, grills above the sacrament table and on the opposite side of the chapel, the exit door. There was a grill. looked like a speaker was in it, but it was decorative. I don't think there were speakers in it, but I thought, is he, is he looking out of one of those? Shh, you never know. And then I looked in the back of the chapel and there was the organ and the organ loft had speakers too, that had a lattice, uh, like a speaker grill or something in the back decorative. Is he looking out of there? No, you never know. He's always watching. So I had no idea who the Bishop was. I just thought I better be quiet. Or he's going to get me. So I assume <laughs> that Dick Shemway was much older than you. No, he's my age. Oh, Same age okay. as me. But he knew the protocol. He knew you're supposed to be quiet and reverent in church. And he was teaching it to me, which is uh, It sounds like uh, somebody, this is something somebody would do that was maybe 10, 15 years older than you. Just a nice way to no, get you no, to be quiet. No, he just knew that he had to toe the line. Uh, and, and I don't know, he kind of made, the idea. had any idea who the bishop was. I didn't know he was sitting up on the stand with the other speakers and stuff up there. I, I, he could have been. <laughs> I just didn't know. And so later on, I don't know, maybe a month or two later, I noticed other kids my age and Dick's age were passing sacrament. I thought, ooh. And I says, I asked Dick, I says, Dick, how do you get to, how do you get to pass the bread and the water? Oh, you have to be a deacon. A deacon? Well, I didn't know what a deacon was. I thought it was at a rank in the Boy Scouts or something. I didn't know what it was. He says, how do you get to be a deacon? Oh, you got to talk to the bishop. Oh, <laughs> so <laughs> a little stroke of fear went through me. But at that time, I realized I was being pretty good. I wasn't making too much noise back there. So I figured, okay, I'll talk to the bishop. So I went in the lobby after Sunday school and I said, how do I talk to the bishop? Oh, his office is right there in the cultural hall. It's a door off the cultural hall. So I went in through the, into the cultural hall and the first door was the bishop's office. I knocked on the door and I was invited in. He, he invited me in I, and he was Bishop. Oh, hi. I, I would like to become a deacon. Oh, you would. 
how old are you? I'm, I'm 12. I says, okay. Uh, and he tries to look up my records and he can't find me in the records at all, but he finds my mother who is a member of the church. And I think that's how the pickets ended up getting a hold of me because they saw, um, they, they saw Verda Watkins here had a son, uh, and we could ask him to primary and, and because she was on the word records, but I wasn't. Oh, so anyway, okay. he, he doesn't see anything about me being baptized or even a member. I says, well, before you become a deacon, you've got to be baptized. Oh, okay, sure. How do I do that? And so, well, we'll send the stake missionaries to your house. And she, he gets all the information, my address and everything. 11218 Jackson Avenue, Linwood, California. And the missionaries or the stake missionaries come over, one of which is in our ward, I think, and one's in the Downey Ward or something. And they come over and, and teach me the 13 discussions, as it was at that time, 1958. Oh. And so it turns out <laughs> that Bishop, the Bishop, was Bishop Shumway, Dick Shumway's father. Oh, wow. That's funny. So he was playing me. It was his dad that was the Bishop, and he didn't tell me. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> you hot dog, you little pranker, you know. But I thought it was kind of funny when it was ironic when I found out it was his father that was a bishop. So anyway, they taught me the first uh, 13 discussions, and I was baptized on January 4th, 1958, at the age of 13. And then shortly after that, they made me a deacon. So that's kind of my conversion story, if you will. Okay. Uh, I eventually learned about the Book of Mormon. <laughs> from so which... you, you had a uh, dramatic story in your childhood that I read on uh, soundsofsunday.com that I found was interesting. If you want to go into that real quick. You mean the, uh, the ocean experience? Yes. Well, me and Ronnie, when we were young, I was about six and Ron was about five. Our dads would go fish uh, in the ocean on the on the rocks looking for crabs or not looking for crabs but the crabs would climb in and out of the rocks we would look for the crabs and try to catch them uh, we didn't want them to pinch us so i'd be careful with that but they were off fishing off the rocks uh, jack which was dad's uh, ron's dad and my dad roy and they uh they brought us along and we just played there on the shore or, or along the rocks and then we decided to go across the rocks across the pier to the other side which has a beachfront. It's just regular ocean waves. It looks like a beach. And so we went over and played in the ocean and swam in there, and we had a good time. And we came back, and then we went home, and everything was fine. They caught some fish or whatever. So later on, I can't remember, maybe a month later or so, my dad decides to go fish there by himself and take my mother and me along. So the three of us go there. I didn't have any brothers and sisters, so I was by myself. So we went to, over there to that, uh, that pier again, and we, we fished over there, or my dad did. And then I says, hey, Mom, I'm going to go swim in the beach on the other side like me and Ronnie used to do. I says, oh, are you sure it's safe? Well, yeah, we've swam in there before. It's okay. It's fine. Well, I'm going to come with you just in case. I thought, you don't have to, Mom. It's just fun. But she came over. She was desperate to follow me over there. So I came over there in this beachfront over there, just like before. I says, Mom, it's fun. And so I ran off in. I didn't even notice the waves particularly. I just noticed the water. And I ran out there, and this wave, probably as tall as my house, crashes down on me. 
and starts dragging me out into the ocean. I thought, wow, that's a giant wave. And as soon as the wave clears, I get up and run as fast as I can to get out of there, probably five or 10 feet, and another wave pounds down on top of me, starts dragging me out even further than before. And I wait for the wave to clear so I can get up and run, and that's what I do. I run again, and another wave pounds me down on the sand. My mom's witnessing this from the shore, not sure exactly what to do about it. Meanwhile, that is the, the biggest waves I've ever seen in my life. And while I'm under the water, I feel like I'm going to get dragged into the ocean and I'll die. I'll drown out there. So I prayed under the water that I wouldn't, wouldn't die, that I'd, get, you know, I'd be able to get out of this. And I think the next wave, I can't remember how many waves exactly, maybe three or four waves, I feel my mom come up and clutch my left wrist right as the wave is, is starting to clear and she can reach me. She found my wrist and she starts to pull. And immediately I get up and I go with her. I, I try to run just as fast as I can and as hard as I can. And I just barely missed another wave crashing down on top of me. It was like a nightmare to me. I thought wow. I'd never seen anything like that. Those waves were so huge. And my mom, I mean, she saved my life. I wouldn't be here today. I would have drowned in that ocean. At least I think I would have. Oh, yeah. So uh... later on, we're leaving the beach. We're leaving the beach uh, to go home. And we left uh, the other way. We left in a closer way where the beach was. And that's when we passed the signs that were erected right there at the edge of the beach by the parking lot. Dangerous undertow. So this beachfront didn't always have undertow, but at times it was terrible. And this was one of those times. And I hadn't seen the signs posted before when we came before previously. It was just a regular tame beach. Uh, but seeing as so we came in south of those signs, we didn't notice the signs at all. That's where the pier was. I later on was uh, driving up and down the coast with my family, wondering where it was that I had... Uh, been when I was nearly drowned. And I discovered it was a place called The Wedge at Balboa Beach, uh, Newport Beach in California, just south of Long Beach. And so there's no other place like that that has a long pier of rocks going off into the ocean. And on the north side is a beachfront like a, like a regular waves. So I'm pretty sure that's the place that's, that was in proximity of my house in Linwood at the time. So... Uh, so I have a couple questions. First of all, um, back to your story about going to church. Your dad was a non-member. Yes. Did he have a problem with you going to the uh, to church at all? No. They, okay. I don't think he did. I think my grandmother was very strong in the LDS church, and she lived in Long Beach, a little short, about five miles from where we lived in Linwood. And I think they had a deal. He grew up Baptist in Oklahoma. Although he oh. wasn't he wasn't active in church at all, uh, but he was a good man. And my mother grew up as a LDS, and I think they had a deal. When Carl he can make up his own mind what church he will go to. Let's not try to persuade him either way. In fact, I don't remember my grandmother even saying anything to me until I met, I, I was baptized, and then she came to my baptism. She was all excited, and she brought me a birthday card, 
And it was wow. on the birth. It was a birthday card that says you are born again. <laughs> so it wasn't literally my birthday. It was my baptismal date. So she was excited and she became a great influence on in my life after that. Um, she's the one that uh, put it in my heart to go on a mission and told me the great things I could accomplish in life. So was it, was it, so I assume then when you turned 19 or whatever, whenever it was that you went on a mission, was it a hard decision for you or did you just go at 19? Because that's what we do. Well, it was kind of traditional to go at 19. Uh, no, it wasn't a hard decision. I'd made up my mind. I want to go on a mission, but I wasn't a really responsible kid. I get a job and get fired and because I was goofing off or one thing or another. Finally, the bishop and my parents weren't necessarily excited about me going on a mission in the first place. So it was 21 when I finally went on a mission. And my dad actually spoke in my, my uh, farewell meeting, soccer meeting. Really? He only, he only spoke for maybe 30 seconds or so. And he said, we will support him and look forward to the time he comes back. And, you know, wow. he knew this is what I wanted to do. And he wasn't opposed to it. He was just hoping I'd get on with college and, you know, become an electrical engineer or something. So that was his most important thing. Uh, he, he didn't dislike the church. He just didn't have any place for it in his life. Yeah. He was, he was a good man. He taught me very good morals. He taught me to respect women and, and to uh, tell the truth and not steal. I mean, the basics that you would expect. And he wanted me to be a good person, a good boy, uh, and a virtuous young son. And, and, I, and to that extent, he, I was. I met his expectations there. I didn't get in trouble with any girls or anything like that. And I stayed worthy and I went on a mission. So uh, let's talk about your mission for a little bit. Then we'll talk about how you got into radio and sounds of Sunday and those type of things. Um, did you have any experience on your mission that sticks out to you or something like that? the most spiritual experience you had or something. Yeah, I did. And it was in my second area. I was trained in Eureka, Montana, which is up by the Canadian border, actually in a little place called Fortine is where we live. What was your mission called real quick? The West central States mission. And which included what Montana, Idaho. It took in all of Montana, Northern Wyoming, a little part of Eastern Idaho and Western North Dakota and Western South Dakota and Shadron, Nebraska. Oh, wow. It was, it was the largest stateside mission in the church. Wow. And one transfer was from Blackfoot to Mandan, North Dakota. And that was about a thousand miles. Oh. And so that's his, how large the mission was. Wow. Interesting. Okay. So yeah. go ahead. Oh, what? So the spiritual experience I had was in Columbia Falls. It was my second area. And we met a couple of girls uh, by referral from uh, the Lovells in our, in our war, in our branch. It wasn't a ward, it was a branch. And the Lovell family suggested that we talk to their babysitter, uh, Janet Thurston was her name. And she had a sister named Marge. And I remember going Not over Marge to her Simpson. house. Say that again. Not Marge Simpson from the Simpsons. No, 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 no. <laughs> Margie or Marge, yeah. Marge Thurston. And so we went over to her house and we were able to get discussions going with the girls. They were, you know, interested. And so we went over to, um, I think another family in the, in the, in the, in the branch, the Avery's. And we taught first discussion to Janet and Marge together. 
Uh, Janet was pretty disturbed by what we said. Marge, she gave us the answers we wanted to hear, but I don't think she felt them too much. You know, she was happy and cozy with it. But Janet had just been baptized in, I think, the Methodist Church. Oh. And when, when we made it known to her that Joseph Smith said he was, re, you know, restored the gospel and the priesthood, <clears throat> this basically said that all the other clergy did not have any authority to baptize. And she was disturbed by that because I think she knew it was true. Huh. So we knew that she was, uh, I, I knew anyway, that she was very uh, um, uh, believing of what we said. And <clears throat> pardon me, on one particular occasion, we'd given her like uh, two discussions and we'd given her a Book of Mormon to read. And then I found out I was being transferred to Livingston. And it was like on a Thursday or something like that. And Monday, I was going to leave. So I called her up at her. Well, first of all, I had a, an intense prayer with the Lord early morning hours, probably until two o'clock. I was praying that I would have the opportunity for to see her gain a testimony of the church and also to be baptized before I left. How long did you pray? Probably off and on for a couple of hours. Oh, wow. Okay. And finally, at the end, I felt the Spirit confirmed to me, yes, you will see her gain a testimony, and you will be there for her baptism. And I was oh. satisfied with that, because I knew she would be baptized. I just wanted to be the one to, to do it, because I felt so close to her, you know, that she was a, you know, I felt I just really wanted this. And so anyway, the next morning, she was babysitting. It was a Friday, I think. She was babysitting, and I called her up, and I says, Janet, I want you to read Alma 32. And so she made note, Alma 32 in the Book of Mormon. And okay, thank you. So the next night, I think that night was Friday night. We had a discussion over at the Lovells. And I remember us getting into the third discussion, talking about, well, have you prayed about the Book of Mormon to know if it's true? And she lit up like a lamp. Yes, I did. I know it's true. I read what you told me to read. And she felt like she identified with what was written in Alma 32, uh, some parts of that story. And she, and she later told me that she, it's like the sun came onto her when she was babysitting, and she felt this glow and this intense light come into her. Uh, it just seemed to happen. It's like it doesn't think it was an accident. She knows that it was, it was true, the Book of Mormon was true when she read that. And I thought, well, that's wonderful. So we taught her the third and fourth discussions at that time. And the fourth discussion was a baptismal commitment. Now, Janet was 18, and I guess she was old enough to make her own decision on this. But the next night was Saturday night, and, and we were invited to her house. Her parents invited us over uh, for, for dinner. Well, that's good. And we're over there having dinner. And then at the end of dinner, I motioned to Janet, you want to tell your dad what that you received an answer. And she didn't know what I was talking about. She thought I was talking about baptism. And I think I was talking about, uh, giving the discussions in their house, the fifth and sixth discussions. So we were, uh, we weren't connecting on that one, but she thought I meant baptism. And so she said, okay, dad, I've been studying the Mormon church for a while now. I, I want to be baptized. And her dad's mouth fell open. 
Janet. Like she was crazy. Like, what have you, what are you doing? You just joined this Methodist church. Now you want to do this. And we just sat back and listened, us missionaries. We just sat back. We were, there were three of us there, had three missionaries there at that time. And then she went back to her purse, which was hanging on the wall, I think. And she pulled out the Book of Mormon we had given her. And she in tears said, Dad, if you read this and you prayed about it like I did, you would know it was true too. And he just kind of stunned. It was like a drama in the middle of their, in their, their living room. I sat there, oh, my goodness, you know, what have I gotten her into, <laughs> you know? But that's yeah. what she had to do. That's what she had to do. Because um, finally, after, I don't know, a half hour of back and forth, and I love you, Dad. I mean, she didn't need his permission. She was 18, but she really wanted it. And so after a while, she he came up to her, says, okay, if you really want this, and patted her on the back and loved her. I says, yeah, I will come to your baptism, and, you know, it's fine. So he went for it. And so later on, after that uh, exchange went on, we decided to go over to Averill's and give her the fifth and sixth, sixth discussions. Probably best because they weren't, they didn't know anything about, you know, the church is uh, forming or anything like that. First and second discussions is where you need to begin. And the fifth discussions on the plan of salvation and the sixth discussions on the law of tithing at that time. Yeah. So the next day was church in our, in our branch. And that afternoon, uh, I was privileged to baptize Janet. What year was this? 1960, uh, 60, uh, come on, 66. Was it in the summer, the winter, or what? No, it was like in August. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was at the end of summer. Oh. And I remember, yeah, it was 66, uh, August 28th, I think it was. And and where in Montana was this? Uh, Columbia Falls. Okay. Interesting. I do you know if she's still around today. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm in touch with Janet. Let me oh, tell you the okay. rest of the story. So I get transferred. To, we went to a fireside that night. Uh, at the elders, we took her over to a fireside in Whitefish, and from Whitefish, I you know that's the last time I really saw her or was with her. Came back to Columbia Falls. I was transferred Monday the next day. So I went to Livingston, and that Christmas, uh, Christmas of 1966. I sent their family an illustrated Book of Mormon to read. And while I was gone, I mean, different parts of my mission, I think Marge, she started, she was hanging with her Catholic friends and she had a boyfriend that was Catholic. And then later on, they broke up or something. And she found herself walking over to the branch that Sunday to join Janet in sacrament And at that point, Marge became very interested in the church. A year later, my cousin, Joyce Colson, who was out there, she came out on the mission right after I did in the same mission of all things. And she got transferred to Kalispell, which was just north of Columbia Falls. And I told her about Janet and Marge and so forth. And, and so she was able to go up to Columbia Falls and teach her discussions to Marge. Marge gave, gave her the rest of the discussions which ended up with Marge getting baptized. And two weeks later, her mother was baptized. Wow. So the three of them joined the church. Then Marge kind of had wild days as a teenager. I think she was probably 17 at that time. And then she repented. Like that country song, Wilder Days. I don't, yeah, you know, teenagers make mistakes. Of course. And I'm not sure exactly what she all did. Uh, exactly. I don't think she got in terrible trouble or anything, but. 
seems like she got involved in drugs or something. I can't remember what it was. But then she came back in full faith, and she served a mission to France. Marge went on a mission. I think it was France where she went. Maybe it wasn't France. Maybe it was Eastern States French or something. But I'm in, charge, I'm in touch with Marge today, and she's just fine. She's living up in Canada with her husband who'd been on a mission. And um, she's a sweetheart, Marge is. And Janet lives down in Arizona. She met a wonderful man. I think they have 13 kids, 12 or 13 kids or something. Oh, family. my gosh. By, and, together? Uh, with her husband, yeah. <laughs> I mean, because you hear yeah, about Yeah, yeah. I think she, yeah, wow. she bore all the children herself, yeah. Well, that's good. Uh, so let's talk about your career in radio. How did you get started in radio? Okay, radio was uh, kind of something that fascinated me as a kid. Growing up in Los Angeles, I remember at the age of 10, um, I, well, I was nine. I went into fourth grade classroom and Mr. Orwall, who was my fourth grade teacher, brought in a tape recorder. And each of us kids got to walk in front of the tape recorder and talk into the microphone while it was recording. Then after we, he, he, we sat down and he played back the recording of all us kids talking into the microphone. Uh, that just, to me, blow my mind. I had never seen anything like this, where you could record your voice and play it back to you. And I really wanted to get a tape recorder. I was just fascinated with this. And so I told my mom, and she says, well, save your money from your paper route. And I was getting $13 a month from Herald American Paper Route. I delivered on Thursday and Sunday. That's when the, the paper came out. And I had $13 a month, and I saved up about 90 bucks which I hardly saved anything at all. I always spent it as soon as I got it. And so I saved up 90, $93 or something like that. And we went to the white front department store in Los Angeles, which was a discount store, kind of like a Costco in those days, I suppose. They had all kinds of nice things in there, including tape recorders. And I found the tape recorder, a voice of music tape recorder in that day. And it was priced retail for $175.50 wholesaler was 134.75 and that's what we would pay i didn't have that much but my mom kicked in the rest and we bought it december 22nd of 1955 oh as I, I recall the date came home with it started playing on it recording my dad and my mom and thinking it was so cool um eventually i started recording songs from the radio put the microphone in front of the radio speaker and I'd record my favorite songs. I thought that was a cool thing to do. And later than that, I got a, uh, a Heathkit AM tuner. And that picks up the radio stations. And it doesn't have a speaker. It has a, an output on it, like an RCA jack. And you can plug it directly into the tape recorder and record directly from the tuner onto the tape recorder. And so... That's what I started doing for a long time. Did you ever listen to headphone? Did it have a headphone jack so you could at least listen to what you were recording? The tuner did not, but I could hear it through the, the speakers of the tape recorder. Oh, okay. Once you plugged it in, you could monitor the, you, you could hear it coming through the speaker of the, of the tape recorder. Okay. So I would bring my friends over around the neighborhood. Hey, you want to hear a certain song? So I'd find it on the tape and I'd play it for them. <laughs> that was my way of beating out to buying 45 RPM records at the time, which I didn't have a record player anyway. So, <laughs> so anyway, the tape recorder fascinated me. I thought that was a cool thing to do. And eventually I probably a junior in high school. 
I listened to the local radio station, KRLA at that time, playing the hits. And I realized that I would like to be one of those guys to play the music. I'd like to be a DJ, a disc jockey. My dad thought that was a pretty lowly profession. <laughs> he wanted me to be electrical engineer, which I was interested in doing as well. But broadcast uh, working in radio stations just fascinated me. It just attracted me. It's something I always wanted to do. And so uh, when I got off my mission in 1968, uh, I sought out a job as a DJ, you know, while I was going to college. So I worked in Centerville, Utah, at a little old lady station, I call it, because they play little old lady music. That's what I called it. It was old. What station was it? It was uh, KBBC at 1600. Oh, okay. That's a Spanish station now. Well, it could be. Back then it was, I didn't know. Are they even on the air? Yeah, I think so. How about that? Yeah, I had a tower right by the the highway going by all the way up to Lagoon. Um, They didn't have the freeway in place at that time. I think it was just a state highway going up there. And it went right by the street that KBBC was on. And it was just a little, little small station. No big deal. 1,000 watts at 1,600 in Centerville, which uh, didn't go very far. But it was where I got $1.50 an hour, you know, as a DJ. It wasn't very much money. <laughs> so this was after your mission, I take it? Yeah, it was after my mission. Right? Okay. What year was this? 1968. Okay. I was 23 years old at that time. Okay. And then I got into the National Guard in Pocatello, Idaho, to avoid being drafted and going to Vietnam. So at that point, I worked some odd jobs in Salt Lake. I worked at industrial communications in the Kennecott mine, which serviced two-way radios. So I don't know how long I kept that job at KBBC, probably not very long, because it wasn't pop music, you know, but I got some experience. And then I went to Fort Knox for uh, four months beginning July of 68 until November of 68. And that's where I had basic training in AIT uh, for the National Guard. Later on, after I got done there, I I moved up to Rexburg, Idaho, where I went to Ricks College. And I did the afternoon show at KIGO in St. Anthony, Idaho, which is north of Rexburg, about 13 miles, I think. So I got a little experience doing afternoons. That was awful. You listen to me and oh, are you kidding? That kid doesn't know what he's doing. <laughs> it was terrible. Just learning how to be on the radio, you know? Yeah. And while I was there, I didn't tell you this, but on my, on my mission, I acquired a tape recorder and I used it to record a song in my closet in Livingston, Montana. And the song I wrote before my mission was called Angel. And it was about just a love song, really. While I was in the MTC, they gave us an opportunity to perform any, you know, music or anything like that, do a performance before you go into the mission field. And so I elected to take them up on that option. And I thought, well, I just can't play Angel without any missionary words. There's nothing inspirational, just it's a love song. So I wrote two more verses to the two verse song. So it's four verses. The last two verses were about missionary work. <clears throat> so I, I performed this at the uh, MTC. While I was on my mission, I got that tape recorder 
And I borrowed a guitar from Sister Knight in the in the ward. Uh, I think it was a ward in Livingston. It wasn't a branch. So I borrowed that uh, guitar, and I recorded two tracks of guitar, one rhythm and one lead. And then the next morning, I got up and actually sang it, the uh, one voice, and then I did a harmonizing voice on there. So that's the way it stood for a long time. It was a, a two recording song. I, I did sound on sound with this tape recorder. It goes to left to right channel back and forth. And you're able to build the, uh, build several recordings like that. It's a, it's a terrible way because it doesn't, uh, the Sounds noise like it was it. kind of the primitive way of multi-track. It was a very then. primitive way. Yeah. And it was a primitive recording studio. It was in my closet with uh, clothes hanging around to deaden out the sound and a cheap little dynamic microphone little Colrad mic that I had. And anyway, I got that done. The mission president, Wallace E. Broberg, learned that I had a tape recorder and I was spending my time recording songs in the closet. So he, <laughs> he said, Elder Watkins, could I just take that tape recorder here so it's not such a distraction to you? Well, I complied, okay. So he takes the tape recorder and keeps it at the mission home in Billings. So I'm without it for probably maybe a year. I'm not sure. It wasn't quite a year, probably another nine months or something. The mission president comes in in July at Jenkins. They changed in July of 67. I'm in Blackfoot, Idaho. I borrowed two tape recorders there to add the bass guitar part. So I've added bass now to the recording on a separate reel of tape. And on my way, being transferred to Mandan, North Dakota, uh, President Jenkins says, Elder Watkins, on your way to Mandan, could you come by the mission home in Billings and take this tape recorder that's been sitting in the hallway? <laughs> yeah, I'd be happy to. I think you're old enough and big enough to control yourself and to use it for missionary purposes now. I says, yes, I'll be happy to do that. So I took the tape recorder back and brought it to Mandan Bismarck, and then I finished up in Bozeman, Montana. In, in March of 68. So back to uh, my job at St. Anthony, Idaho, at KIGO, I, I thought I'd play Angel on the air and see if anybody liked it. I got a lot of feedback. Oh, yeah, it's a good song. I really like it. I can't remember if I played all four missionary verses. I think I edited it to two verses because I thought maybe putting all this religious stuff out in the public like that might be scorned or ridiculed or something like that. So I decided to make a record of it. So I went to Los Angeles record manufacturing and I brought in the master tape and there was the two version, uh, verse uh, version of angel on one side of the record and the uh, complete version of angel with four verses on the other side, the missionary version. So I ran up and down the Valley. I got the records and I went to Provo and I asked KOVO if they'd like to play it. And then I took it uh, to Logan, to KBLW, and I actually interviewed on the air with Darla D. And she you know, asked me how I recorded the song and so forth. And those two markets, I didn't get into Salt Lake. I think that was too Gentile an area for Angel to be a song. You know, it was such a primitive recording in the first place. It wasn't really a professional thing in a studio. And I went back up to Rexburg, and they, we played it on the station up there a little bit. As it turned out, Angel was the number one song at KOVO in Provo two weeks in a row. Wow. 
and they played the, the four verse version. And the stories I'd hear were the, the girls waiting for missionaries would come together at night. It was almost a ceremony where they'd play angel and cry a little bit. And go How did it get into Provo? <laughs> I brought it to KOVO in Provo. Oh, okay. <clears throat> that, that was in Provo. And so they'd play it, you know, they listened to it there at BYU. Interesting. And then uh, it was number one in Logan for a week at KBLW at 1390. And KVNU played it too at 610, I believe. Interesting. So it was a, it was a hit recording. <laughs> that was, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. You know, it's funny about Angel. So let me ask you this. As a DJ, you know that there is very little money to be made unless you're a morning jock or somebody like Glenn Beck. Well, and I don't know. Yeah. I'd imagine today they don't call them DJs. It's air talent. I'd imagine it's worse today because it's all voice tracking. And unless you're a contractor, you voice yeah. track for several stations. It's you're not going to get paid anything. I didn't get paid a lot of money. Uh, I so definitely... how did you, because I know eventually you got married and had children. How did you support that? Because uh, well, I hear horror I was also and... chief engineer. I did engineering for the stations. Uh-huh. Like at KEY Wine Provo, I was a chief engineer, uh, chief engineer up in, in Idaho, where we lived for 30 years, K- KLCE, had four stations up there. So they paid me a modest amount of money. Wasn't a lot of money, uh, but, you know, enough with seven kids. I did a lot of dances on the side. I took the speakers out and did like school um, dances, school or dances. What? Yeah, school dance, steak dance, those kinds of things. Okay. I DJ the steak dances. And- did you DJ for any weddings? Yep. Oh, yep, they'd okay. ask me to come to a wedding occasionally. Okay. <laughs> so that's kind of how I supplemented the income, but we barely made enough. Yeah. I never was wealthy. Let's put it that way. Yeah. So, so what did you, this is, I'm just asking because I know a little bit about radio. Did you ever have to work for free or did you ever get your paychecks late? Because I heard that this has happened. At yeah, it did stations. happen I... once at KEYY. Oh, uh, that was when we were first married in 1971. Uh, Might have been 72. I think it was 70. Nah, let me think 71. I think I remember one time they didn't have our paychecks and we were thinking and I was basically talking uh, to my friends working there. So let's go on strike. Let's not show up if they don't give us a paycheck, which is kind of mean. Because maybe you didn't yeah, have any money. The no, probably across. nothing in the bank at that time. What's that? Yeah, it definitely sends the message. Didn't happen very often. Uh, up in Rexburg after we got married and I worked up there for a year. He had a hard time paying me, which wasn't very much money. But he just wasn't making much money. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I've heard horror stories. I'm not kidding. I, I've heard yeah. horror stories where some radio stations, the owner gets greedy or something and no paycheck. So they all take a well, trip to the bank and get a loan or a credit union or whatever a financial institution. They, the station qualifies for a loan. Oh, here's your paycheck. It's probably not a lot different than it is other businesses. Some businesses just flounder and they don't make a lot of money. And some radio stations don't make very yeah, many but you sales. You always hear about it in radio, never other, mm-hmm. never any other well, business. It's if you're close enough to radio, you know. I don't know for sure. I I haven't heard about it in other businesses, but I rarely heard about it in radio. Oh, oh yeah, it's yeah. Uh, yeah, it's happened. I've heard horror stories. Now this doesn't happen at every radio station. No, 
but it does happen where sometimes the owner just doesn't make enough money. Yeah. Has a hard yeah. time paying people or there's greed involved and the owner embezzles money. I've heard all kinds of horror stories. Yeah, yeah that's true. Yeah. But I, I can't imagine it doesn't happen other places too. It just, uh, I think we have our ear to the so. ground for radio. We're just, our attention is focused on radio mostly. Yeah. So that might be why we notice it. Yeah. So let's uh, <clears throat> real briefly cover how you met your wife and then we'll get into the sounds of Sunday. Well, it was 19, I just got off my mission. Um, it was 1969. I got back from Fort Knox. I had worked at Rick's College, I uh, went to Rick's College and worked at KIGO. So we'll go back to California for the summer to be with my parents. And I says, I want to go to BYU. I want a job in radio while I'm going there so I have a little money. And plus get experience in radio. And so it's like uh, July of 1969. And Dwayne Case, the program director at KOVO, calls me, says, well, we got a job for you. You could probably work uh, whatever nights or whatever. Can't remember what they had open. So anyway, I decided to go up there in mid-July. And I go up there in mid-July mid and work at KOVO. And he was familiar with me a little bit because of the song Angel, but not as a DJ. And so I'm a DJ now. Well, I worked there for a month, and Dwayne calls me into his office and says, Carl, we're going to have to lay you off. And that was a nice way of saying he was firing me because and he told me, because you're not very good at reading the news. And we had at that time, we were supposed to, you know, give the headlines or read uh, maybe a five-minute newscast in the hour. It was just formatic at that time. Or you had to double as a disc jockey and the newscaster. So I felt bad because I, I wasn't good at reading news. I floundered reading it. I didn't know how to pronounce words and stuff like that. And so he terminated me working at KOVO in mid-August. So I needed a job. And so I was into electronics. And so I applied for a job at Signetics, which was up at the top of the Orm Hill, uh, across the street from the University Mall at that time. And Red Lobster's there now and Kohl's, but it used to be a Signetics plant right up there. So I go up there and apply for a job as an electronics technician. And he tests me and so forth. And he hires me as a junior technician. I didn't have a degree in it, but I had a lot of practical experience and understanding of electronics. So he hires me to work there as an electronics technician. His name is Jim Smith out of uh, Sunnyvale, California. Definitely not a member of the church. I think he, um, what a way, I don't know what church he was into. But that Smith didn't correlate with Joseph Smith at all. <laughs> but anyway, he tells me, showing me around the plant, he says, you got to leave these girls alone. They'll get you in trouble. Really? And you got to realize what the population was at the Signetics plant. It was about 10 girls to one guy. The girls were really good at doing tedious work under the microscope. And when they're making integrated circuits, that's what they do. They bond little hydrogen flame, and they do a little silver solder and that type of thing uh, under a microscope because they're very small. And the guys working there, they have two capacities. Either they're the foreman over a crew of girls, and they have to have a college degree to do that, or electronics technicians. You know, they work on the equipment, and I was the latter. And so while I'm... Uh, Jim Smith puts me under the supervision of another technician to show me what I'm supposed to be doing. Kent Eldridge is his name. And 
I asked Kent one day, I says, Kent, who's that blonde girl over there? Oh, where? Up there in the final test area. Oh, think she's cute? Yeah. Uh, why don't you ask her out? <laughs> Which was quite the opposite of what Jim Smith would have told me to do. But Ken Eldridge realized I was a return missionary, and he'd just been married a couple of years, I suppose. And yeah, okay, maybe I will ask her out. Yeah, yeah, do it. He didn't care what Jim Smith had to say. So in the final test area, I'm up there working on one of the final test stations, which looks like a desk. These girls sit at these desks up there, and they conduct tests on the integrated circuits with a computerized program that comes from the mainframe computer sitting in the middle of the floor. So you walk over to the mainframe and put in a program, and it could be on ticker tape, like... Uh, I don't know if you remember what the computer programs were on, like in 1969. Yeah, I think I, tape, I, I, I kind of a roll idea. of tape with little punch outs on it. And you'd feed that into the tape reader. And then it would put the program in the computer, and then you'd be able to apply that test on the test stations from the mainframe computer. So Linda's up there standing right there, the blonde girl is up there standing next to the to the uh, tape reader, and I walked up to her. And she had noticed me before, but she thought I was married. I guess she could see my garment line under my shirt. So she assumed I was married like everybody else in the plant. But I was the only single guy there. And I said to her, I says, hi, why do you wear that stamp around your neck? She had a stamp. And the girls carry stamps with them. And they, when they get done testing some integrated circuits, they put a slip of paper in the bag and they stamp it with their stamp or signature. That would be their signature that I certify that I have tested these. And that's what her stamp was. But she was wearing it on a string around her neck. And I says, why are you wearing that stamp around your neck? Because my foreman tells me I have to because I keep losing it. Oh, <laughs> so I thought that was quite funny. <clears throat> Here's a blonde, you know, <laughs> is she the dumb blonde? I don't know for sure. But anyway, she's kind of cute. And I said, well, would you like to go somewhere Friday? And she steps on one hip where and she at that time realizes i'm single she thought i was married before and i says well drive-in movie okay so anyway she takes me up on my offer and i picked her up friday night we went to the drive-in movie i think it was the art city drive-in in springville and that's where it all began where i met linda at the signetics plant okay <laughs> So let's talk about how the Sounds of Sunday was created, which is what you're known for now. Right. Okay. So Sounds of Sunday was a creation of Jim Burgoyne. And he was a station manager at KLCE in Blackfoot. Now, he had worked at KLVO or K96 in Provo in the 70s, and they started Sounds of Sunday. Actually, that's the first version of it that occurred was in the 70s. And he thought, well, on Sunday, maybe we could play a bunch of Janice Capri songs, Tab Choir. Nothing like that exists on radio. And he did it, and the community received it quite well in Provo. He got some buys, some sponsors, and that type of thing with it. And, and so he was excited for it. Uh, he's a man given in the faith. Jim Burgoyne's a very good man. And uh, later on, he was up in Logan. Ken Franson hired him to, to work in Logan at KBLW or KBLQ, it is now. And he did Sounds for Sunday. Now, that's a different name, Sounds of Sunday, Sounds for Sunday. 
The reason he went to Sounds for Sunday is because Sounds of Sunday still existed in Provo, and he didn't want to infringe on the name, and he wasn't sure if uh, he would get in trouble legally by using the same name. So he changed it to Sounds for Sunday. And then later, he moved to Blackfoot. Ken Franson sent him up to Blackfoot to KLCE, probably in 1985 or so. And he called it Sounds of Sunday again. That was his preferred name because we're in Idaho, and whatever Utah does may not extend into Idaho. He felt okay about using Sounds of Sunday again. So they called it Sounds of Sunday in Blackfoot. Now, I had worked, I was working in Rexburg at KDQ at that time. In 1987, we moved there. And I was uh, listening to Sounds of Sunday. I could hear it on KLCE coming up into, into Rexburg. And the manager of the Beehive Bookstore said, maybe we should do something like that here locally on KDQ in Rexburg. And I can't remember. I think we called it the LDS Top 10 Countdown, something like that. And it only went for maybe an hour, maybe a half hour, an hour. And we pre-recorded it and we played on Sunday morning. So there was a number of LDS songs that they'd play at Beehive Bookstore, which was a competitor to Deseret Book. So did, were you actually at the Beehive Bookstore when you recorded this? No, we recorded in the studio. No, he came up there okay. to the studio. No, but, and that's okay because that's where the production was done in the studio. So we recorded this half hour show or whatever it was, and we played it on Sunday morning. And then later I left uh, KDQ and I went to KLCE. Jim Burgoyne hired me. He, he always wanted me to work for him. So I did. And, and what was year that, was this? That was 1988. Okay. <clears throat> I went up to, we moved up to Blackfoot. <clears throat> Pardon me. We moved up to Blackfoot in June of 1988 after the kids were out of school. Oh, Okay. I thought, I, he, I thought you were hired in March of 88 for some reason. You know, I was. I was hired in March, March the 31st of 88, but I used to trip up there, 50-mile uh, uh, drive up there, drive to Blackfoot from Rexburg every day until we moved there. Okay. Interesting. We, yeah. Okay. The kids were in school, and I didn't want to take them out of school. Yeah. Yeah, so that anyway, makes sense. Yeah. And then we moved there, I think, in June, in June of 88, something like that. We rented a house up there. And so I went to work for KLCE. And while I was there, I mean, I probably 1997, I went to Jim and I said, Jim, I think, uh, well, Jim came to me at one time. We, we had the conversation where we needed to put stories to go along with Sounds of Sunday, some inspirational stories. And I hadn't thought much about it. That was probably in 1995 or something like that. And then I kind of thought I wanted to change stations. I wanted to move up to Idaho Falls at a different station. I thought, well, if I work there, I want Sounds of Sunday to be here too. And so I thought, how am I going to do that? I'm going to one-up Jim. I think I'll put stories on uh, Sounds of Sunday, you know, inspirational stories. And so at that time, Glenn Rawson was my kid's seminary teacher in Blackfoot. And our state got reassigned the ward districts, the areas for the wards got re, re, uh, what do you call it? Sliced and diced in the stake. And I ended up, our family ended up in Glenn's ward, the Blackwood seventh ward. And the first Sunday, Linda and I go to church and we thought we like to go to gospel essentials. It's kind of cool class to go to. And it was up on the stage at the time, went up there and Glenn's teaching it. 
And I, I listened to him and I thought, my kids sure like Glenn. He really is a good instructor. And I said, I wonder if he'd be good at recording little inspirational stories to put on Sounds of Sunday. And I closed my eyes and he had a great radio friendly voice. And I thought, wow, he'd do pretty well. He'd probably do better than I would. I don't, I don't have all the material to do these stories. So I approached him after class and I said, Glenn, Glenn, would you like to explain what I was doing? You know, maybe going up to Idaho Falls and record some stories that we could put on, put on Sounds of Sunday or a Sounds of Sunday type of program. Maybe it wouldn't be called the same name. And he seemed agreeable to it. And I says, well, do you have stories already written? He says, oh, yeah. How many do you have? Oh, a couple of hundred. I says, wow, that's great. So we didn't really schedule a time to do it at that time. Finally, it was like uh, 97 in July. Let's go do it. Okay, we determined to go down to the studio. It was it July 15th of 1997, I believe it was, that Glenn recorded his first story, which is close enough to touch, about the woman reaching out to the Savior. He's watching down the street. He's walking down the street, and she was healed um, by her faith. That was the first story. And we went to, I went, at that time, I, deti- I didn't tell you this, but I decided not to take the job in Idaho Falls. Yeah. What was behind all that? Oh, I just had kind of friction with Jim at the time, you know, how okay. radio is. And so yeah. I decided, you know, the friction's over. I, I like Jim. I'm not going to leave him. So I stayed at KLCE and that's where we went in to record the first story. And I gave the story to Jim. I let him hear it. He was excited yeah, let's put it on the air, you know? And I went and we went in and he recorded two more stories. So we had three all together. And the first Sunday that we aired him was the first Sunday of August. So we had three stories to air. And thereafter we recorded three stories every Sunday for every Sunday. So during the week he'd come in and, re- and he would um, voice the stories and I'd get some music to put behind the stories to add emotion to it, you know, to add some feeling to this, to the story. And all through the year of 1997 into 98, right up until August of 98, uh, we recorded uh, three stories per weekend, per Sunday. And so we had like 156 stories, I think, total, or 152, whatever the number is, three times 52, 156 stories. And then, then Glenn wanted to keep going. He said, well, I got more stories to record. We could do better. Okay, so we kept recording more stories after that. We didn't do three per week, but we did uh, We did one every week or so. And then we kept on going. Today we have like, uh, I have about 480 stories that I've aired on the air on Sounds of Sunday over the years. Now, for those of you that don't know, Glenn Rawson is a, like you said, was a seminary teacher yeah, I first he, heard of Glenn Rawson in 2020. He was doing Facebook Live stories about the pioneers. Yeah. Yeah. What happened with Glenn? He later uh, taught Institute at ISU in Pocatello for a short time. And then Larry H. Miller some way heard Glenn because, well, let me set you up on that one. I was working at KLCE and John Hare, who was the program director at uh, Cozy 106.3 in Salt Lake City. Oh, Cozy 106.5? Or maybe it's five now. Yeah, it yeah. was 106. It's now Rock 106.7, but go ahead. Yeah, it was 0.5 at the time. 
They were 0.3 in Spanish Fork. When they moved to Salt Lake, I think they had to go to 106.5. Oh, okay. John Hare approached me and said, hey, is there any way we can play these Glenn, Glenn Rawson stories in Salt Lake on Sounds of the Sabbath, which was the name of their program? Sure, I can make them available to you. So I had to edit out Sounds of Sunday and edit in Sounds of the Sabbath when he said it. You know, and so we provided those stories to John Hare and he ran them for probably over a year, a couple of years until um, I guess the station dropped the program for one reason or another. I think change of philosophy, change of format or something. But Larry Miller heard those stories on Sounds of the Sabbath. So he was aware who Glenn, Glenn Rawson was. So he hired Glenn to go to work for him to do the Joseph Smith papers which was a television production that he had it, I think at K jazz television station in Salt Lake, which he owned. Okay. So we did the Joseph Smith papers and then we he went into history of the saints, which is what he went into okay. later. Yeah. Yeah. So I know that sounds of Sunday, and this is what I found interesting is uh, syndicated. I'd heard the words sound of sounds of Sunday, but I thought it was a generic term being used with some radio stations. I didn't, how did you get this program syndicated and when did it happen? Well, probably about 2004, 2005. Uh, there were other stations that wanted the Glenn Rawson stories. And I thought I needed to set up a program called sounds of Sunday. So it, it wouldn't sound foreign. You just can't play the Glenn Rawson stories between two pop songs, it, it would yeah. be out of context for the program that's on. So I created a half hour show called sounds of Sunday. Later on, I expanded it to two and a half hours and later on to five hours. And, um, Kim Lee who owned the station in Idaho falls, which I was going to go to work for him. He owned a station in twin falls and he wanted to play it in twin falls. So I says, fine, I'll provide. Oh, wasn't the, that uh, K bar in Burley? Uh, that was one station. That, oh, what yes. station? K bar is definitely one, but I think he put it on 99.9 as well. One hot oh. 100 there. Yeah. No, he what was both the one them. in Twin Falls that he put it on? That's the one uh, hot 100. Oh, are they? Okay. Cause I know they used to broadcast out of Burley. They do, but I think they're licensed to Twin Falls. Yeah. Okay. I think they have a sales office in Twin Falls, something like uh, that. Oh, probably. Anyway. They're in both locations, yeah. So he was instrumental in getting me to develop the show, Sounds of Sunday. Now, I didn't really own the name. I was just using it. But later on, when it became available, uh, I was watching the website, the registry on the name. I, I got soundsofsunday.com eventually. I had .net to begin with, and then dot com became available somebody was tying up the name for some reason or they weren't doing anything with it so i got dot net dot com and dot org and eventually i kept going to con i i think i went i can't remember how you do trademarks and copyrights through washington dc i was able to acquire the sounds of sunday name as a as a trademark national trademark and so that trumps all the state trademarks uh, they had a, a trademark in Utah for Sounds of Sunday, but nowhere else. So I got the national trademark on it. And so that's how that started. I can't remember when I got that trademark. Probably probably around 10 or so. Who in Utah had the trademark? Well, it was originally with um, the station at KOVO in Provo. 
I can't remember if the station owned it. I think it was a station. Then later on, Bob Morey got the trademark for Utah. Trademark oh. name sounds a Sunday at K-Star in Orem. And Bob passed away. And I don't know. I didn't try to get it from him. Uh, I think it stayed with the Morey family, as I recall. But I was able to get the national trademark on it, which supersedes state trademarks. So how many national. affiliates do you have now? Because uh, I, I think know, there's I 16. The, 16 okay. or 17, because in Idaho, I believe there's seven in Idaho. Let's see, KLC, KSRA, uh, KZDX, KBAR, uh, Soda Springs. Uh, what are the call letters in Soda Springs? Think of it in a while. Uh, and then Montpelier, KVSI, Preston, KACH. What is that, okay. seven? And then there's then we have one in Star Valley, Wyoming, KRSVFM. And the one in Evanston, KNYN, that's two. That makes nine. Vernal, which is uh, Channel X94, KXRQ. Uh, then in uh, and down in Price at KOAL. And then out of Ephraim into Richfield and Nephi is, uh, is the Eagle. Uh, think of the call letters, 94.5. Down in Moab, KCPX, as they call it down there now, 1490. And then in in St. George, um, KCLS, which is uh, 101.5, Sunday 101.5. And then in Arizona, uh, in Sholo and also in Safford, those two stations are carrying carrying sounds of Sunday. Now, let's uh, make something clear in case somebody says to themselves who's listening to the podcast there's two versions of the sounds of sunday because there's one yeah okay doug barton doug barton in manti has been doing sounds of sunday for a long time and he's a friend of mine actually um i see him occasionally and we kind of work together he's the one that has my sounds of sunday on the eagle uh, 94.5 that plays in nephi and richfield and so forth and he has been doing his own version of Sounds of Sunday for a long time. Although now we're going to start airing it on one of his other stations, which is KK, uh, KUUT, which is at 93.7 that comes into Utah County. Oh, okay. That's supposed to start this Sunday or next, probably. I oh. called G- and talked to J.D. Fox about that, and Doug's agreeable to do that. Um and so it is a little more modern type music than what he would find on what he's been putting on with the tab choir. Although he wants to integrate his, uh, the talks, uh, this firesides and stuff into the program as well, which play in the morning and late at night. So that's another station we're going to add pretty quickly. I think. Have you thought about putting firesides in your program? I've thought about it, but then for the stations that, aren't agreeable to it. I don't want to make it undesirable to them. Yeah. They want to add the firesides. I'm all for it. Now, Glenn has his little half hour history of the saints program, which is available to them as well. There's also mm-hmm. music in the spoken word, which stations can pick up. Yeah. But it's kind of like, you know, I don't want to be cast out because the station doesn't want it all. So yeah. pick and choose what you want. If they have reasons for not playing music in the spoken word, or history of the saints, but they want to be music intensive or something. I'll respect that. 
I don't yeah. make that decision. They do. Yeah. So you got to just pick out what you are and be the best at that and not try to be everything. So when did the sounds of Sunday start <clears throat> streaming for 24 hours a day? Well, uh, Ted Garling came to me. I'm going to say 2010 or so. And who's Ted Garling? He's a guy that, uh, the son of a friend I knew on a mission. Oh, okay. When I was on my mission up in Bismarck, there was a guy named Steve Reed up there. He just okay. gotten back from a mission. I became friends with Steve. He was into music and that type of thing. And Steve later moved to Rigby, Idaho and set up a recording studio. And I think later on, long story short, um, he, he married again. He married, he had his second wife, I think had a daughter who married a guy named Ted Garling and Ted Garling was a young man. He came to me and he says, Hey, we ought to make a, a streaming station for you. I had never even thought about it before. What year was this? I'm going to say probably 12 or 10 or something like that. Okay. And so, uh, we set up a streaming computer. Jim Burgoyne assisted me at KUPI at the time, and we actually streamed from KUPI. And then later on, I moved a computer into my house in my basement, and we used that one. So it streams continuously on a computer that I have in my studio. Okay, so... so sounds a Sunday 24-7. Yeah. Do you get emails from people all over the world, or do you get... Because I would yeah, imagine... I do. I get a few emails from people. Well, I would imagine most of your audience who's listening outside of the Intermountain West probably comes from those that did live in the Intermountain West, especially Utah in eastern Idaho, maybe parts of Arizona. What do you think? Well, it's hard to say whether I don't know. Some people have never lived here, but they are LDS and they appreciate the program. Oh. Um, I hear from one fellow in Indiana that's always talking to me, you know from John. Wow. He listens all the time in his, uh, I guess he works at a, a drugstore, some sort of a little drugstore, and he listens to the program in there in Indiana. There's another fellow in, in, in Australia. I hear from him frequently and just gets in his two cents and how are you doing, that kind of thing. There was a lady that I first met named Deborah that lives on upstate New York, and she contacted me, oh, five seven years ago. And she told me she was pretty close to where the pageants are in Nauvoo up in that area. And she really liked the show. And I remember she uh, requested uh, glorious by Russ Dixon at the time. And then later on, David Archuleta recorded it for Meet okay. the Mormon soundtrack. And she asked me to play that song. And I thought, wow, that's a great song. I hadn't heard it before. So I'm thankful to these people that request songs because sometimes I just, I don't have an opportunity to hear them. So she just reached out for me again the other day, and I was talking to her. She's upstate New York. I never really met her, but just online, you know, over the, over the internet, just email. So, yeah, I hear from people here, here and there. Never know where they are. Somewhere, so, in, the, somewhere in the Wasatch Front, you know, I hear people in Layton and Salt Lake and that type of thing because they don't have the program on a local station in that area. They listen online with Alexa or someone, you know. Yeah other way of doing it okay so what does the future hold for the sounds of sunday well i don't know that anything's going to change anytime soon or as i know i'll just keep doing it until my days are over you know 
I have no reason not to. You I'm 78 now. And I don't know, President Nelson's 90, 98. So if I can live to be as old as him, uh, maybe I'll be doing this for another 20 years. <laughs> yeah. So I would imagine that, you know, a lot of LDS musicians being in yeah. this field. Uh, I just want to ask you real quick. Do you ever see a day where we will have LDS punk rock music, LDS alternative, L just like you have Christian hard rock music or whatever? Well, I can sort of see it evolving into different types of music, you know, that's appreciated by listeners. I can't say it won't happen. It's already happened to some degree. You got LDS rock or uh, rap rap music, which is kind of novel more than anything. I don't know about that for sure. It could go there, but I don't know if it'll be very popular. Yeah, because uh, believe it or not, there's a lot of Christian rock out there. I'm talking yeah. about bands like Petra, who sound a lot like Def Leppard, uh, the White Horses, DC Talk. I can't so, say it won't happen. Yeah. But I don't know how much reception they'll get out of it. I mean, people have all kinds of art forms out there that not very many people like but themselves so okay that's fine yeah yeah the closest i have heard to that what we're talking about is the singles ward soundtrack yeah i can't remember exactly what's on there i've seen the movie oh there's a punk rock version of come come ye saints there's a kind of a alternative rock version maybe punkish i belong to the church of jesus christ uh there's yeah, one yeah. book of mormon stories yeah i'm playing one now come come ye saints by gladys knight and the saints united voices okay and it sounds tribal sounds like they're in the middle of the jungle with the bongos hitting come come ye saints you know that it's kind of funny and novel I Maybe you ought to get uh, some I play it once in a while. Together. Jim Burgoyne thinks it's okay. What were you going to say? Maybe you ought to get some young musicians together that are into alternative rock or whatever and have a different streaming version of the youth version of The Sounds of Sunday or something. I don't know. Maybe somebody should do that. I don't know no. if it'd be me. I've already got enough, uh, already carved off enough uh, jobs for myself at this point. Yeah. Well, um, so you're an obviously an active member now. What is yeah. your calling in the church? I'm the stake technology specialist. I work in audio. And what? And you, oh, go I ahead. I just got an award calling, award historian. I have been in various callings, executive secretary in the bishopric, Sunday school, Sunday school president at one point. Yeah. I haven't been in the bishopric, but. Uh, so what? do you like about being a member of the church of jesus christ latter-day saints i like service okay i think service brings joy okay very good and uh if you can stay anxiously engaged in a good cause i don't think uh, life could get any better than that it's not about money you need enough no. you need enough money to live on that's true so you can't go around poor with your hand out all the time yeah. You want to be able to do something to justify your existence. Yeah. But at the same time, you want to be of service to people. You don't have to be filthy rich. Probably better that you're not. Yeah. Just uh, live in a, a conservative life, you know, and do your part, help others. Uh, it's, it's that. If they called me to be 
the stake president, I'd feel the same way as I do if they called me to be primary teacher. I don't like that contrast too much because it almost uh, implies that the primary teacher is beneath the dignity, you know, he's not very important. Well, he's very important. He's important oh, yeah. to those children. Very important to those children. Yep. More, th more than the stake president is. Actually, I've heard of uh, yeah. former yeah. state presidents becoming primary teachers, believe yeah. it or not. Yeah. I don't know if it happens much, but I've heard of it happening. Yeah, that's right. And so I think whatever you're called to do, play your part, you know, do the best yeah. you can. I basically carved out this sounds a Sunday job for myself because I felt it's something that needed to be done. It was inspirational. I felt I could use my, my talent in a way that would be um, maybe one of the best contributions I could give to the cause of our father in heaven and was to do sounds a Sunday. Yeah. All right. Anything else you want to add? Well, um, counting down the days to the second coming, but I'm not sure how far the count goes. But yeah, I don't want to speculate because that just drives me crazy. Well, uh, a friend of mine just approached me the other day and asked me, when you retire from that, well, I don't know if I'm going to retire from that. Maybe I'll die one day, but then maybe the resurrection will occur and I'll get renewed. You know? <laughs> maybe. <laughs> I said, give it 10 years. You'll never know what will happen in 10 years. Yeah. 12 years or whatever it is. Yeah. I mean, I have my, I don't know. It's hard to say because I could be wrong. I, I, I don't want to be proud enough to say that I'm right because I'm not right. I don't know. I just have ideas and thoughts and convictions. Yeah. But I am not a prophet of God. I want you to know that right now. Yeah. Uh, I have an opinion that's no greater than anybody else's opinion. Yeah. We all have opinions. So that being said, I try to live by my personal inspiration to do what I need to do. I do feel the Savior's coming soon. I think he'll be here in the thirties. Uh, I don't know. I mean, like I say, I'm, I'm just another person that has an opinion that's no greater than anybody else's. Yeah. But, but we well, do our part. Great. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was great to have you on here and uh, I will talk to you all later, folks. I hope you like this update a little bit better. It will be divided up into segments eventually. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you for listening to the LDS Life Podcast. Soon there will be a new email address where you can contact me at. Ask her, ask her.